0: Welcome back to the Relentless Minds Podcast. I am your host, Lori Jimenez. I created this platform with a sole mission, and that is to inspire people of all backgrounds to create the change they wish to see in their lives and in the world by sharing the examples of those who are. As a listener, you will hear the stories of ordinary men and women with extraordinary stories of overcoming adversities in order to experience the life they dream of. All of these individuals share a common interest. They desire a change for the better and they are in a relentless pursuit to create that for themselves. If you're looking for inspiration to overcome challenges in your own life to create a life that you desire to have, then you have come to the right place. You see, the truth is, people everywhere are fighting for what they believe in. And together, with relentless action and mental strength, I have no doubt that we can fulfill that dream. Welcome back to the Relentless Minds podcast. In today's episode, I interview Rowella Leveld. Today's story with Roella is all about her finding her strength after being a victim of sexual abuse starting from the age of five and later creating purpose in her life by helping other victims of sex trafficking to also find their own strength to continue. Roella went on to start the Share Network organization, a nonprofit organization whose purpose is to raise awareness. Their mission is to create opportunities for survivors of human trafficking to thrive. They achieve this for survivors of human trafficking by using the 3E approach, which is to empower, educate, and employ. Hi, Rowella, thank you so much for being here today to share your story with us on Relentless Minds. Yes, thank
1: you uh, for having me
0: and allowing me to share. I have to tell you, I was really looking forward to this interview Um, And to be able to have this conversation with you, because I know that your example of strength and resilience of what you went through is going to help a multitude of people out there that are also experiencing or may have experienced the same thing that you did. And your example of being able to find strength in your healing and then move on to create something that is even bigger than yourself the organization share network which we'll talk a lot about and how you're you continue to help so many people through this endeavor is is greatly inspirational and so i'm excited to tap into your story to to talk to you about what you went through and what helped you to continue on to be where you are today with the impact that you've made and so to start off our interview I wanted us to go back because I know that when it comes to your personal story and experiencing sexual abuse in your life, Mm -hmm. this didn't start at 18 years old. This had started before then. So I wanted to go back to that time. What was your first encounter with sexual abuse as a child? And can you tell us how that happened um, and about the memories That you have surrounding your childhood and upbringing?
1: Yeah. Um, You know, the first time um, I remember, like it was yesterday, Um, and, you know, I was around five years old, and it was um, somebody that was familiar to us, so to me and my family. And, um, you know, you hear the usual stories of, of grooming and um, of, of getting in. And um, before you know it, you, you're ending up in a situation where all your boundaries have been crossed. And so for me, um, it was somebody that I knew. Um, I don't necessarily want to go into all the details of what exactly happened, but we're talking about um, you know sexual abuse. Um, and what really stuck to me specifically when it happened the first time was that, um, that person said to me, because I didn't understand at all what was happening. I was five years old. So I never had a sexual encounter before. I didn't know necessarily what sex was. So I asked that person, you know, what are we doing? And, um, that person, um, responded to me, you know, when grown-ups uh, when they love each other, this is what they do, they have sex. So every time they would, um, you know, have their their way with me, they would um, always ask me to say if, if I love them. Um, you know, and later on in life, it was really, I really realized for me that it wasn't necessarily only about the act that happened, like the physical act that happened. But it was really about what I started to believe about myself, you know, and the things that were told to me and were ingrained in me from such a young age that I took with me uh, throughout my teenage years, my young adult years. Um, which was one of them was that sex is equal to love and love is equal to sex, but but love can be experienced in so many different ways. And also the things that I started to believe about myself. Thing that I'm I'm good for is is to be used or is, is for sex, and you know I think also one of the reasons why I was so vulnerable to that at such a young age is I almost feel like a cliché to, to say it, but it, it, it was also not having a father around, you know my my mom studying and working full time also because of that not being able to be around, and so when somebody familiar then comes around with the intention to take advantage of someone, you're, you know, you're left to fend for yourself. And at five years old, you don't know how to, how to necessarily do that. This
0: period that you were being sexually abused, how long did that
1: last? Well, it was for about four years. And then later on, it happened again, because like I said earlier, it was not only about the act itself, it was what I started to believe about myself as a person and what I was worth. And so a lot of times you, um, specifically, even when we talk with with our clients or different uh, people that I, I, I've encountered that have experienced the same thing, it, ha- it seems to be happening at one point in your life. And then all of a sudden, again, and again, and again, and usually is uh, a couple of times uh, it happens because of the belief that I had about myself so at the age of 11 there was another encounter and and so on and so on
0: so can you speak a little bit more about this belief that you had of yourself and how that caused that pattern
1: yeah before i even go deeper into that i definitely want to say you know now i've come to learn that it wasn't my fault you know that i was definitely a victim Absolutely. Um however, you know, one of the things as I've that I've discovered is also that I do have a choice that I am worthy of more than being used for sex. But you know, it, it's a coming together of a lot of factors. It's not having a father in the home or not having a mother around a lot because she's working and studying at the same time. So going to other friends' houses at a young age and seeing their parents present makes me feel like well is there something wrong with me that my parents don't want to be there because i don't understand yet that my mom has to work hard that things didn't work out with my father you know what i mean and then also when we specifically talk about what happened it's believing that i'm not good enough believing that i have to do certain things in order for people to love me i have to do things in order to belong, to be accepted. And when you have that deep hunger for love and acceptance, it makes you more vulnerable to, to experience something like that again. But no matter what happens, it's never your fault what happens is you know you end up living kind of in a survival type of mode so it's like you try everything to make it to the next day so the time to take out to maybe meditate or, or reflect on things you don't really have also because you're you're young and you don't necessarily know how to do that um, so i wouldn't i wouldn't be able to say with 100% confidence that it's not that you're not seeing the red flags because oftentimes it's easier to see a situation that is outside yourself than to look inward. You know, it's easier to say to someone else, like, watch out, there's a car coming, instead of saying it to yourself. So I might have seen, if I look back, I might have seen red flags before that, but I didn't have the ability to process all that information. What I have come to learn is that the perpetrator or the the persons in my story definitely have the ability to, in a sense, smell the vulnerability and know that I didn't, at that time, didn't have the understanding or the skills, the tools, to process, everything.
0: I think that that really speaks to the perpetrators, because like you mentioned, they can smell it, they can see these vulnerabilities. When it comes to you growing up, having experienced what you experienced, did you at any point tell your mom you know tell a family friend did you feel you could trust anyone with what you went through at that time i
1: i didn't because i was i was told to to keep it a secret you know you, you build up you know the whole grooming process is you build up a relationship to a trustworthy relationship where there's often time the gifts being given You know, all that kind of stuff. And then you're told also to keep it secret. So at that time, I I didn't. So it took me a long time. And I I still sometimes have difficulties to talk about it.
0: You then had a subsequent encounter later on in life, in your young adult life, when you were 18 years old. And at this time, you were living in Curacao? Yes, in Curacao.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Curacao. So I know that experience that happened in Curacao was very difficult and so we don't need to talk about the experience here on this interview but I do know that you know up to this point you had had these constant experiences with the sexual abuse and when it comes to your healing and when it comes to processing these do you feel like you you were able to at this point in your life up to your 20s or do you feel that you just instead were suppressing those memories and those emotions
1: I think at that time, I didn't have the tools, the skills, or the understanding um, to be able to, to process, to cope with what had happened. Also, I think I suppressed a lot. And when sexual abuse happens at such a young age, it takes you a while to realize that it isn't normal, that it isn't normal for somebody to cross your boundaries in that way, that it isn't normal for somebody to touch you in that way. So as in my early 20s, as a, as a young, younger person, I called the best way I knew how to, and that was drugs, that was alcohol, that was partying, surrounding myself. Unfortunately, with not always the best people around me because that, that's all I knew. That was all that was, was out there for me to be able to process the feelings that I had. When it
0: came to, when you did decide to heal what was it that made you make that decision when you decided that you couldn't continue to live that way
1: you know what there was a pattern that was that i was noticing now in my later 20s i just reached a point where i was i was tired it's not talking about okay i, I woke up early and i need to go to work now i'm tired it's really like this inward this deep tiredness of having things happen over and over again and so I ended up in another situation in this house and I I just couldn't take it anymore. And then what happened is that I started to encounter other women, specifically in this case, that had the bravery and the courage to talk about their problems, their issues, but then also to share with me things that had happened that I recognized in my own life, you know? And something in me awakened where I was like, I wish I was as strong as, as those women, you know what I mean? I thought they, they were, they still think women who have the, um, the courage and the bravery to speak are our heroes because that is not necessarily, unless you're Bernie Brown, but it's not necessarily something uh, celebrated within our communities to share your vulnerabilities, to talk about your pain and then Absolutely. to even talk about sex, and I'm from Amsterdam, and, yeah. you know, in this, in our schools, elementary schools, we talk about sex and all that kind of stuff. But there's still, no matter what country, to talk about sex is, is, is not necessarily something that is celebrated accepted. Or, yeah. or accepted or cool.
0: It's like taboo. You know? It is like yeah. taboo. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was... It was interesting because I was reading a bit about your story and about how you had felt like a hypocrite at one point because you were volunteering with organizations, going to brothels and talking to women, helping them, trying to, you know, help them escape or leave the the industry, sex industry, and um, encouraging them to embrace their traumas and reflect and that you felt in a way that, that this would be good for you as well, but you weren't at that point, willing to do that. Do you feel like that maybe encouraged you to oh, as most well? definitely. Okay.
1: Most definitely. Uh, that, is, that is still, I think, the driving force. Not necessarily the feeling that, I'm, that I've betrayed somebody, but the, the example that we try to set, that is definitely the driving force, the energy. Because, you know, if, if people have the courage to speak about something that is so taboo, to be able to share it. And it's so difficult to share, then think about that's only a representation of what is really going on out there. So that means that there's more people, more victims, more survivors. And I think that's definitely the driving force behind the work that we do. And then also, it's an honor (laughs) to be around people that are just, that are kind of like defying the status quo or how it should be. And are like, no, I'm gonna work through it no matter how messy it is. Uh, No matter what other people think uh, of me, because it's, it's, it's also, whether you've experienced sexual trauma or not, it's always difficult to be in such a vulnerable place to admit, okay, I need help. So yeah, most definitely the survivors are heroes. (laughs) I love that. Do you feel then that,
0: you know, being vulnerable and opening up, whether it's your story or other women, serves Two purposes. One is that it's healing to be able to connect with others and hear that they're not the only ones and that other people feel their pain, but also because it exposes an issue that is a lot more large than what many people probably think it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if I if I just look back at at my journey, it was it really helped to identify something that was within myself, It, it gave me this relief, this sense of beginning the healing process and knowing that it is okay, I'm not crazy. There are you're not alone, you know, there are other people who have experienced it. And having survivors speak about it, allowed me to recognize that I'm not only a victim, but I'm also a survivor. And I have the ability now also to choose to become an advocate. I'm a woman, I'm a daughter, you know, I'm all of those things. And by speaking about those traumatic things in the past, it doesn't control you as much anymore. It gives you control back over what happened. Um, And I think once you start speaking about it, the healing can really start. And then you start to realize when you do that the self-reflection and you start to realize, wow, well, if, if I've accepted this, that this has happened in my life, then like you said, there must be more people out there. So we need to continue the conversation. We need to continue to talk about it and create organizations or create movements within within society within cultures to where we feel like we have a safe place to talk about these things and that it shouldn't have to be hidden because it's not okay for somebody to touch you when you are under 18 or above 18 without consent it's just not okay
0: thank you for sharing that and when it comes to your healing process speaking about sharing their story connecting with other people Were there other things that you felt that you did during this time that really helped you to feel more empowered?
1: Oh, dancing.
0: Dancing. (laughs) I love it.
1: Yeah, dancing is my thing. Dancing, definitely. Because you don't, you don't, I'm not the best with words. (laughs) And you don't need words necessarily to dance. (laughs) You don't need words to dance. So it was dancing, feeling the rhythm letting yourself you know be whisked away by some lyrics of some overly romantic song that is probably isn't real but still it's it's fun so you just get lost
0: in your music
1: oh definitely and that was healing for you wonderful definitely
0: yeah
1: yeah it gave me a break and uh, and it allowed me to feel the the blood rushing through my veins to feel to feel human again
0: wow that's incredible Moving now on to what you then created.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you created Share Network Organization. And I want to talk about this nonprofit. And you're helping survivors of sex trafficking to now thrive, you know, mm. uh, their life after leaving the industry. And I wanted to ask you, what was your main goal in starting this foundation?
1: My, my main goal was to create... Um, initially when I started to create a safe space for for survivors to be able to share their stories because I found myself so much healing in it. Um, And I think, you know, we still make mistakes, but I I, I definitely think when I first started it was pretty much daily falling on your face (laughs) yes which which is good because that's how how you learn um you know but you know the vision has always been to see an end to human trafficking you know i hate injustice and i don't think you know human trafficking is a global issue i don't think specifically in the west we realize that there's also a lot of victims amongst us and then it kind of became um, this whole thing of like, okay, you know, you have a lot of NGOs and organizations that have good intentions and that they want to, they want to help. And what we often forget to do is to really listen to the people that we want to help. So we often think, okay, this is what you need. And we don't pause to take that time. Okay, what is it that you really need? So after creating that community, which kind of happened really organically, uh, we had created a, kind of like a sisterhood. So we started to just really just ask survivors, okay, what is it that you need? What is it that you long for? You know, when when you've experienced abuse, oftentimes, even with um, sex trafficking victims, they've oftentimes also experienced sexual abuse at home or some type of violence. You don't necessarily get the chance to think of, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be a judge or... You know, it's usually you're just living from day to day. So it's really like, okay, what, sometimes you need that time to just rest and think, okay, what is it that you want to do? And a lot of women and men, because we also have male clients, except to us, you know, we want to work. We, we just want to belong, be part of society and not only work to make money, but also contribute mm-hmm. to society. The, the sisterhood that is, it's not always happy-go-lucky. There's definitely this disputes yeah. and stuff like that but the sisterhood that is amongst our clients because they the empathy that is naturally there is like no other besides finding work and internships it's also cooking together dancing together so it's
0: definitely a community where you you get the support you get the love encouragement to grow so it's a healthy environment and yeah and i can definitely understand how you know, it really, really helps these women and these survivors to continue to grow. And I know that your organization's model is based on empower, educate, and to employ these survivors. Um, why did you feel that these values were so important specifically for the survivors of sex trafficking?
1: My, my process has always been one of a deep belief that we're all connected. So also always looking inward and then looking outward. And I feel almost bad saying this, but I think a lot of what we do is also stuff that I like to do. And it is also information that we've gathered from listening to our clients. So we have um, empowerment programs where we, you know, we do projects where we give cover-up tattoos to survivors who might have been branded by their pimps. In the Netherlands, we we also call them lover boys. We have dance workshops and um, we do makeovers. Um, for example, when one of our clients um, is getting ready to do an internship or a job interview, we do makeover and also have little photo session where they can keep their photo and their link for their LinkedIn profile and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we do also do mindful boxing, so getting that aggression out, but then at the same time also being mindful. So those are our empowerment programs. And then we also have educate and employ. And that's really where you get job training with oftentimes uh, our business partners. I love that. Those are great approaches.
0: And it really sets them up for success. You know, I think for the opportunities to be able to feel empowered, like at the photo shoot and feel like, you know, they have these resources now available for them. I wanted to ask you, when it comes to eradicating, that's the mission is to completely destroy the sex trade. What is the number one problem that fuels the industry and is what needs to be addressed?
1: It's a good question. You know, I think when we when we look at demand and when we look at systems and systems of power, I think we have to question why there is such a huge demand for the access to people's bodies, you know, to be able to do what you want with somebody or to pay for that access think we should definitely ask that question first. And when you talk about policies, and that that goes, counts as much for the left as for the right conservative. I think we need to start the conversation there. The demand. The demand, you know, and most people that are demanding are, are male. <laughs> so if most of, of the clients are male, why are we not challenging that? So it would be
0: about learning how society can begin to target how men sexualize and prey on women and children?
1: I wouldn't necessarily want to make that statement and point the fingers at at men, but I think it's definitely, they are a big percentage of the clients. Okay. And most brothels are owned by men. Most places that you can rent from are owned by men. Everything in between are mostly female. That is true.
0: So. Okay. So the focus should be on just why is there so much demand? Um, I actually want to just finish up our interview today by asking you, what would you, what would it be that you encourage society to proactively do regarding the issue of sex
1: trafficking? Talk about it. Talk about it. Listen to survivors, listen to people who have actually lived it. Allow those people to actually bring change as well. So talk about it. Yeah, but also we, in, involve survivors in, in bringing solutions and bringing change.
0: Mm. Thank you so much for that powerful statement. And thank you so much, Ruala, for being here today and sharing your story with us openly and vulnerably. Really, you have showed us so much strength and passion, and I'm so happy that we were able to share your example um, for others that might be going through a similar experience or have gone through a similar experience
1: step-by-step, day-by-day together, Lori. Absolutely. <laughs> we do Absolutely.
0: One, One life at a time, right? Yes. One, one life at a time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it and feel inspired and would like to be a part of the Relentless Minds community, you can join the movement for change on Instagram and Twitter. We would also love to know how your experience has been as a listener. If you haven't yet, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join us next week for another powerful story. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.